Bibles to Jonah chapter 1, Jonah chapter 1, and we're going to look at chapter, I want verse 3 tonight, we're going to look at just verse 3, we covered verses 2 through 3, uh, 1 through 2 last week, and tonight we're going to look at verse 3, and it's about Jonah's disobedience, Jonah's disobedience, he was a rebellious servant, if you will. He was a reluctant missionary, if you will, however you want to look at it. But sometimes, you know, God's servants, you know, whatever position they might be in here, Jonah was a prophet of God. And even God's prophets sometimes tried to challenge or question God's wisdom in calling them for his divine service. Moses questioned God. Jeremiah questioned God. Many times we question God. Lord, are you sure? You know, it, it, it can be difficult. It can be trying. And, and Lord, I just, you know, did you, did you really call me? But Jonah is the only prophet found in Scripture where a true prophet of the Lord tried hard to hinder the will of God by running away from the task that God had given him. Now, in comparison to Elijah's obedience to the Lord, man, Jonah tried to go as far away from God as he could in the opposite direction to to go away from where God had commanded him to go. Jonah hoped that Nineveh would get just what it deserved, God's judgment. Jonah was so afraid that if he announced judgment was coming upon the people of Nineveh, that they might respond, they might repent, or respond in a way where God would, you know, where it would persuade God to change his mind. So in Jonah's attempt to keep going from God, to keep from being merciful to his nation's enemies, Jonah ran away. He ran away. Now, there's something that's you know, it, kind of absurd about all of this because being a prophet of God, how could a prophet of God run away thinking that he could run away? Thinking that he could hide from the creator of the universe. Now, the location of Tarshish uh, may have been the southeast coast of Spain. In any case, it represents, Tarshish represents the farthest place known to the people of ancient Israel. Going to Tarshish would be like going to the ends of the earth. It was as far away from Nineveh as it could be. But at the same time, just as there's something absurd about this whole thing, uh, there's something potentially harmful as well here. Because if a prophet of God was to directly disobey the sovereign God, he might not put only himself in jeopardy, but he might put those that are connected with him in terrible danger as well. And sadly, Jonah wasn't on a mission of mercy. He wasn't going there to to, pronounce mercy and and, and a a positive message. And, and, And even if he had achieved his goal, he wouldn't have accomplished it. In a way, he was an unwilling missionary who resisted God's call to go to the nations. The repetition of the words from the presence of the Lord emphasizes Jonah's effort to take himself as far away as possible from his service to the Lord. 
Now, when we think about the fact that the Jews were not seafaring people, uh, they were desert nomads, we're even more amazed at Jonah's risky choice of taking off to the sea. Phoenicians were the primary seafarers of the ancient Middle East. So this was probably a Phoenician ship. But Jonah's natural dislike for the ocean was overcome by his greater disgust at that moment, thinking Jonah, uh, that Nineveh just might escape God's threatened judgment. But thank God he didn't allow Jonah to succeed. So there's also something that's reassuring here as well. God accomplished his work in spite of his servant's unwillingness to go to Nineveh. We will never stop the work of God. He will always do what he's planned to do. Here in verse 3, Jonah, without hesitation, disobeyed God's word. He disobeyed God's command to go to Nineveh. Now, in in verses 1, 2, and 3, well, in verse 2, God said, Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh. Well, he did arise as God commanded, but in the wrong direction. Instead of going to Nineveh, he went to Tarshish. Now, can you picture God as he's watching all of this saying, Jonah, where are you going? You know, it's a story to remind us that even the great women and, men and women of faith, they're human. And they still have the old nature in them. We still have the old nature in us. And you know what? That old nature, man, it's always ready to rear its ugly head. It's always ready to come back and take control. So we fail at times, though that's not an excuse. But our failures aren't to discourage us. And if we study our failures, they can help us a lot. To learn a lot from them. To to help us avoid them later on. So what we're going to do this this evening, we're going to look closely into Jonah's disobedience. And we're going to try to learn as much as we can from Jonah's failure in order to help us not to do what he did. And to be more victorious in our battles against disobedience in our lives. So let's begin by looking at verse 3. That's what it says here. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, and he went down into it, that is the ship, to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, this was a very bad move on Jonah's part, a really bad decision that Jonah made here. God had called Jonah, God had commissioned Jonah, and commanded Jonah to take a divine message to the people of Nineveh. But he decided, I don't think so. He had his own ideas about what he wanted to do. And Jonah didn't waste any time taking off to Tarshish. And no sooner had God given the order to arise and go to Nineveh when Jonah's disobedience began here in verse 3. Instead of going to Nineveh, as God commanded him, he goes to the nearest seaport where he decides to take a ship to Tarshish 
which was probably a Phoenician port in Spain, as I said a minute ago, some 2,000 miles west of Nineveh. Now, did Jonah really think this thing through? I mean, did he really think that he could run away from God? Did he really think he could get away and escape God's presence? We really don't know what he was thinking. And a lot of times when we make rash, foolish decisions, hey, we don't know what's going on in our head. But for those who, who wherever you are, and think that you can escape from the presence of God, listen to what the psalmist David said. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10. Where can I go? Right there. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there. Your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me up. You know, it, it's not that David wished, uh, that, I'm sorry, that the donut to, to go from God or to avoid the power of the divine life. But he asked, I'm sorry, getting back to David in the verse that I read to you. It's not that David wished to go from God when he read these verses or when he wrote these verses or to avoid, avoid the power of the divine life. But David asked this question to establish the fact that no one can escape from the all-encompassing being of God. The all-encompassed being and observation of that great invisible spirit. And it would be wise for each one of us to say, the spirit of the Lord is ever around me. Jehovah is omnipresent to me. In 1 Kings 8.27, it reads, Behold, heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain you. This earth cannot contain God. Now think about that. God created the universe. So he has to be bigger than the universe in all ways. So what does it really mean to flee from the presence of the Lord? Well, in Genesis 4.16, that expression is used to describe Cain's broken relationship with the Lord. It describes Cain's rebellion against the Lord and the Lord's displeasure with him. By fleeing from the presence of the Lord, Jonah is saying unmistakably, I don't want to be here. I don't want to serve God. And Jonah's behavior is nothing less than total rebellion against the sovereignty of God. And, and it, you know, if maybe you've experienced it before, but, but the presence of God is, man, it's intolerable to a rebellious spirit. You know, when, I, when I'm maybe in sin, I've, I, I've done something and I haven't, you know, confessed that sin and, and maybe I'm trying to hide that sin and, 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 you know, it's just the conviction, man. God's presence, it, it's just hard to deal with. So it's no surprise that Jonah's disobedience took him away from the presence of the Lord. It all started with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve went into hiding from the Lord after they sinned, remember? God came looking for Adam, where are you? They were convicted, they were ashamed, and they were afraid. Again, being in the presence of the Lord was intolerable for them. Because they knew what they had done. But did Jonah run from the presence of the Lord because he was afraid? Maybe, especially after knowing the cruel and brutal reputation of Assyria. 
T. Freitheim, an Old Testament scholar, says this, that while prophets were commonly called on to speak against other nations, no other prophet had been called to show up personally. To speak was one thing, but to actually go there to deliver the message personally was another thing. Now, Jonah's own safety may have been one reason for his unwillingness to go to Nineveh. Again, hearing of the cruelty and the fierceness of the Assyrians, he may have feared for his life. But it sure wasn't the main reason. The reason that Jonah disobeyed God and ran away, even though we're not told here, it's clearly stated by Jonah himself in chapter 4, verse 2, where Jonah says, I know that you're a gracious and merciful God. The reason was fear, but not a personal fear, not a physical fear. He was afraid that the Ninevites might repent. And as a result, they might be spared the judgment that they deserved. Another reason for Jonah's fear, maybe he thought that if the Assyrians repented, that one day, sooner or later, they'd come back and destroy Israel. Maybe Jonah, in an act of rebellion and disobedience, thought he could second-guess God's plan. And, and, and a lot of times we try to second-guess God's plan. We try to figure him out. We try to figure out, what is he doing? Oh, I know what he's doing. This is how it's going to all happen. But Jonah found out, like many others do, they found out by experience, and they have all through the ages, those who have tried to spoil God's plans, it's not a good idea. Why? Because the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations, Psalm thirty-three, eleven. God doesn't change his purposes. His commands are not stopped by us. His designs, they're carried out to completion. Because God has a predetermined plan according to the counsel of His will and none of His enemy's strategies can stop what He's planned. Not even for a moment. Man's purposes, on the other hand, man, our purpose, they're, they're tossed to and fro like a leaf blowing in the wind. But the eternal purposes of God are more solid than the earth. This whole turn of events happened so fast. It was so spontaneous in Jonah's life. So we read that Jonah goes down to Joppa, the seaport of Jerusalem. He gets to Joppa. He finds a ship that happens to be going to Tarshish on the same day. And he buys a, 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 probably a one-way, non-stop ticket for what he was probably hoping to be a nice, smooth Mediterranean cruise. Everything happened so fast. It was so spontaneous. And when those kind of things, and, and we're going to look at that more in detail, when those kind of things happen, we look at it many times as, it must be God. There's a ship. It's leaving the day I want to leave. It's going to Tarshish. Man, it has to be God doing this. But even though it happened so quickly, it wasn't just a random act by Jonah. All right? It's not like he woke up that morning and felt like, you know, I don't want to serve God today. Because a sudden spiritual failure doesn't happen accidentally or overnight. Recklessness 
And disobedience doesn't take place unless there's a lot of inward, entertaining thoughts and desire that's taking place before a single step is taken. Before David's great fall, there were days of lazy negligence in his duty. Before he committed his terrible sin with Bathsheba and ordering her husband Uriah to be sent to the front lines where the, where the heat of the battle was, where David was sure that he would be murdered or killed, I should say, in battle, you know, David was hanging out in Jerusalem. When his army was at war, his duty was to be with them. In Jonah's case, we can only suppose that Jonah's spiritual health had been declining for some time before he got his call to go to Nineveh. So Jonah was being conditioned for his great disobedience by inward spiritual decline. Jonah would rather risk his life by going out to sea than to face God's call. So this shows his determination to defy God because Hebrews were basically land lovers. They were a people of land. Now, there's a personal, a personal Nineveh where God calls each one of us to go to. It might be somebody that God says, hey, go share the gospel with them. It might be something that God wants you to do. It's a place where you don't want to go. And the devil says, hey, don't go. Don't go there. Because it's a place of self-denial. It's a place of self-crucifixion. But it's the only place of the Holy Spirit's anointing and power. The fruit in my life that the Lord is looking for, it's not success. He's looking for character. People are looking for signs today. We saw that this morning in Paul's message in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 about the living letters, the living epistles. He said, I don't have to write letters of commendation for these people saying they're Christian and they're right. On. He says, just watch their life. People want to see lives that, that, that live the life that they claim to have. That's what people are looking for today. But there's no greater sign than a broken man or a broken woman that's made like Christ. That's the, what the world needs to see today. They need to see the gospel lived out in our lives, living epistles. We always have to remember that we might be the only Bible that some people will read. Nineveh was an un, going to Nineveh, that was an unpleasant job. That was a place where the people weren't so nice. And Tarshish was an escape from the unpleasant job. But here's the thing. It was out of the will of God. And God wants Jonah to go back to an unpleasant situation. And a lot of times we think, oh, wait a minute. God wants me to be happy. Like God cares more about my happiness than he does my holiness. No, God's more concerned about our holiness than our happiness. And God wants us to many times to, to, to go back or to stick uh, at uh, an unpleasant situation. And people, oh, you can't be serious. 
Many people think that they shouldn't stay in an unpleasant situation. And again, and it depends on, on what it is. You know, and, and I, I always, an example is an unpleasant marriage. They just don't get along. They just don't like each other. They just don't want to forgive. They don't want to, you know, just to make it work with, with Christ in the midst of that marriage. And so people, I've heard, oh, I mean, even when Kathy and I were separated. Oh, man, there's, there's plenty of fish in the sea. Why don't you, you know, just go? You don't have to put up with that and blah, blah, blah. And, and that's the world's counsel. And many times we listen to it. And, and again, the one, one of the favorite passages they use is 1 Corinthians 17. God has called us to peace. And that's, that's, all, that they, that's all that they use. They take the scripture out of context. Let me read to you what 1 Corinthians 7, 15 says. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. In that particular verse, Paul was talking about if an unbeliever, if, you know, if you're married to an unbeliever or, or you get saved and your unbeliever doesn't want to live that life. He doesn't like that now that you're a Christian and that unbeliever departs. Paul said, let them go. You're not called to bondage in such cases, notice, as this. But God has called us to peace. Warren Wiersbe said this, the peace of God is not the absence of problems. It's the presence of divine sufficiency in the midst of problems. Where in the Bible did God say to you and me, we're not supposed to have any problems in life, ministry, or in the world? Jesus said, you will have tribulation. And I love the example of, of, of Sarah and Abraham. When Sarah was, you know, uh, uh, Sarah's maid, Hagar, you know, left Sarah. Listen to what it says here in, in uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. It says, so Abraham said to Sarah, Indeed, your maid, Hagar, is in your hand. In other words, she's your maid. You're her overseer. Abraham said to Sarah, Indeed, your maid, Hagar, is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And it says, And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, Hagar fled from her presence, just like Jonah fled from the presence of God. She fled from Sarah's presence. Now, the angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And the angel said to Hagar, Sarai's maid, it's kind of like he, I'm sure she knew she was Sarah's maid, but he says, uh, Sarah's, Sarai's maid, like to remind her of her position. He says, where have you come from? Where are you going? Hagar said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. What? God asked me to go back to this situation, but he sent her back with a promise. And see, God, when Jesus said, you will have tribulation in this world, he said, but be of good courage. I have overcome the world. Yeah, he says, you're going to have tribulation, but here's your encouragement. Here's your promise. Jonah was even able to go down into the ship, verse 3 says. And he was able to fall into such a deep sleep. Such a deep sleep that the storm God brought didn't even wake him up. You know why? Because sin makes you callous. It makes you hard. 
It can make it, it, it can get to the point where God's conviction doesn't bother you anymore. It's possible to be out of the will of God and still have circumstances seem to be or look like it's God's doing. And like He's working on your behalf. They appear to be the will of God. In other words, you can be rebelling against God and still have a, a, a false sense of security that includes, like Jonah, a good night's sleep, rest, peace. But God in His providence was preparing Jonah for a great fall. David is another example. When David was running from Saul, listen to what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 27, verse 1. David was running from Saul. It says, David said in his heart, this is where all the trouble began. David said in his heart, he began to speak to himself. He began to speak and look at the situation he was in. It doesn't say David went to the Lord. David said in his heart, this is a humanistic viewpoint. David said in his heart, there's nothing better for me. Notice that. He decides, Saul's been chasing him down. He says, uh, he says within himself, there's nothing better for me that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines and Saul will despair of me. So he say, man, the best thing that I can do, this is the, the only option that I have is to take off to the land of the Philistines and Saul will, get, will leave me alone. So this is, so when he said there's nothing better for me, that was his pessimistic reasoning. And he said, Saul will despair of me. That was his rationalistic logic. He won't look for me anymore in any part of Israel. He says, so I shall escape out of his hand. Notice, David did all of this thinking and all of this, you know, uh, know, uh, looking at how to solve this problem of Saul chasing him. And he comes up with his own idea. So he went to, to, to the land of the Philistines. He went to live in Gath. Remember what took place in Gath? That's where he fought Goliath. That was enemy territory. But when he got to to the land of the Philistines, when he got to Gath, he made friends with Achish. Achish was the king of Gath. King Achish was an idolater. King Achish was an enemy of God's people. But he made friends with Achish. It resulted in King Achish giving David the city of Ziklag. Now, David had a place for his men and his family to live in peace, though it was a false peace. David was given a job serving King Achish in the Philistine army. David became popular in the land of the Philistines. So David goes down there to enemy territory... And he finds popularity. He's got provisions now to take care of his family. He finds a job. He has power. All in enemy territory. Earlier when David was in Moab, the prophet Gad said to him, David, leave the stronghold and return to the land of Judah. And God never withdrew that order for him to leave the land of Judah. And yet, because he said in his heart, the best thing for me to do so that Saul will quit chasing me down and leave me alone is for me to leave, leave where God had called him to be in Judah and go to enemy territory. You see how sin clouds your judgment? 
God wanted, to, God wanted David to stay in the land of Israel because it was best that David be where the Israelites would know about David and know what he was doing. David spent a year and four months in the city of Gath. The prosperity that he experienced encouraged him to stay because it made it look like, hey, this is God at work. God is blessing me. But God wasn't blessing him. Remember, anything that keeps us in disobedience is a curse, even though it seems like a blessing. David's move to Philistia brought him good times, but only for a while, because later on it eventually caused David to get into a real serious problem where he was going to have to start killing his own people, but it was the grace of God that got him delivered out of that mess. We have to be careful not to think that God ever approves of our disobedience because of our troubled circumstances. And just because everything seems to be going so good, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's good. Someone said, doing good is based on what God says, not my success, failures, or feelings. What we see here in verses 1 through 3 is first, God calls people to His service. God called Jonah to preach to a foreign city, Nineveh. Secondly, God cares enough about sinners to send a word of hope, love, and grace. And then third, implied here and told later in the story, no one can run from God. You can never hide your sins from God. We have to watch out for justifying our ungodly excuses. We can never say, oh, it was the work of the Lord. God did this. You know, that it was providential arrangement. We can never use that as an excuse for doing wrong. When a person decides to leave the will of God and follow a path of disobedience, the way to follow disobedience will usually be found and Satan will see to it. There, couldn't, there could hardly be a more extraordinary example of what looks to be the hand of God than our story here in Jonah. Jonah wants to go to Tarshish. He chooses a place where he wants to hide from God. So the next thing he needs to do is go down to Joppa on the Mediterranean Sea. He walks down to the seaport. What does he see? A ship going to Tarshish. This, ha- you know, this has to be the hand of God, right? Because boats usually didn't make that trip that often. So, is this really the hand of God? When we learn that the ship will take passengers who pay the price. Notice there in verse 3, it said, he paid the price. He paid the fare. Satan doesn't tell you that there would be a price to take that ship that he prepares for you. Jonah wants to go to Tarshish on the very same day that he gets to Joppa. He finds a ship, it's loaded, it's ready to go to the very place where he wanted to go. Remember, the devil always has a convenient ship ready to take you away if you're running away from God. And people will say, how can you say this isn't the hand of God? And many many people often use use it as an excuse to, to cover their wicked behavior. You know, what else could I do? It seems so obvious that God set all of this up for me. It would be going against the will of God if I didn't get on that ship and go. Evaluating this success of disobedience 
by the world's standards, will quickly conclude that Jonah's behavior, it has to be all right. It has to be acceptable. The sure and accurate way of, of, of evaluating circumstance is to go to the word of God. In Jonah's case, the word of God was very clear. In Jonah's case, the word very clearly discredits any claim of success that anybody could possibly see in Jonah's finding the ship going to Tarshish. This just shows the wickedness of man to try and lay his sin upon the work of God. How terribly you have deceived yourself. If Jonah was so sure that this was the work of God, that that God made all of this ready for him, the ship and everything, and it wasn't very long before he was soon uh, uh, cured of his of his thought, because a few hours later, after his nice nap in the bottom of the ship, he experienced a terrible storm. So now, what is he thinking? Did he still think now this was God's gracious, sovereign plan for his life that led him to be on that ship? Now he wished that he was anywhere else but on that ship, as we'll see. Because when they were about to throw him overboard, he didn't talk much about God's providence. He didn't say, wait, wait, wait a minute, guys. God wants me to be on the ship. He was pretty sure now that he was to blame for the storm. And not God. And I've heard many times men or women say, you know, oh, somebody said something to me at a, about a certain thing. Oh, it was just what I needed to hear. Or I received some money that I needed just at the right time. Again, trying, trying to use the circumstances as the reason for the wrong that they want to do. And remember, nothing can make a wrongdoing a right thing ever. And remember, God never says or does things contrary to his word. And never blaspheme God by laying your sins on his providence. Because that's an act of foolish presumption and disrespect. Now, what happened in Jonah, man, it looked great. It looked like a great move of God. It looked like, like God was just, okay, Jonah, you don't want to be here, man, here. I, I made a way for you to get out. Jonah was rebelling against God by going down to Tarshish. And remember, God does not bless disobedience. Providence or no providence, the word of God is to be our guide all the time. And we must, ne- we must never depart from God's word under the guise of necessity or circumstances. Eve was another example of believing the lie instead of the truth of the word of God. And be skeptical of those who say, oh, I felt led to do what I did. Because it was feelings. Are they walking by sight or by faith? Oh, I felt, the, I, I felt that, 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 that I was led to do this because so many doors were opened. And remember, when you're disobedient to God, Satan opens one door after another for you. Come on in. But when you're on the path of obedience, every door but one stays tightly shut. And that one door is the only open door to a man who's desperate for God's will. Two of the greatest sins that Christians are capable of committing is one, refusing to obey God's orders, and secondly, moving forward when God hasn't told you to move forward. 
And I think 1 Samuel chapter 13 is one of the greatest examples of all of this. When Jonathan attacked and defeated the fort of the Philistines, the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. But Israel was greatly outnumbered. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, the people, man, they they started to hide in caves and in the bushes and in rocks and holes. Anywhere they could squeeze into, they began to hide. And Paul was still in Gilgal. And all the people followed him. They were trembling. They were so afraid because they were greatly outnumbered by the Philistines. And so Saul waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel back in chapter, uh, back in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8. And I would encourage you to read the story. Because in 1 Samuel 10, 8, Samuel said to David, I'm sorry, said to Saul, you go down before me to Gilgal, surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and I will make sacrifices of peace offerings. He said, wait seven days for me till I come to you and I'll show you what you should do. But we go on to read the story in, in, in 1 Samuel 13. It says Samuel didn't come to Gilgal. And the people started to leave, run away. They scattered from Saul. So Saul said to one of his men, he said, bring a burnt offering and bring peace offerings here to me. And it says that Saul offered the burnt offering. And then it says as soon as Saul did that, as soon as, he pre, as soon as he finished presenting the burnt offering, it says, Samuel came. Samuel came, and it says that Saul went out to meet Samuel. That Saul might greet him. And Samuel said to, 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 to Saul, what have you done? That doesn't sound good. What have you done, Saul? Saul said, when I saw, notice, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and you didn't come. Now he's pointing the blame on Samuel. And you didn't come within the days appointed. He came on the seventh day. He just didn't get there soon enough for Saul. And sometimes God will make us wait till the midnight hour. But you know what? He will keep his word. He will do what he said he did, what he's going to do. And Samuel said, what have you done, Saul? Well, the people started to scatter. You didn't come within the days that that you said you would come. The Philistines gathered around at Michmash. And then I said, here's notice, like David, I said within my heart. Paul said, I said, I'm sorry, Saul says, I said, the Philistines are now going to come down on me at Gilgal. And I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt, notice all the eyes, all the, 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 the humanistic viewpoints and the pessimistic uh, logic and the and and the 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 the, uh, the the logic and the and the reason all these things going on within him i felt compelled that i should do this and offer a burnt offering and samuel said to saul you have done foolishly why he did not listen to the word don't expect to ever be complimented for doing something foolish when it's against the word of god he said, he said to Saul, you did not keep the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. He said, for now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue because you have not kept the word that the Lord commanded you. 
Samuel said, I will surely come. When you go back to 1 Samuel 10, verse 8, he says, I will surely come. Again, Samuel was a prophet of God. Samuel was God's spokesman. I will surely come. It's God saying through Samuel, I will be there. God will always be there. But we begin to panic. And see, Paul's faith was replaced by fear. And that's what happens. We allow fear to replace our faith. Disobedience can never be justified based on necessity. Circumstances, no matter how dire, can never cancel out the Word of God. It's easy to make up a story about God's providence when you want to. And if you sit down long enough and you look hard enough into the ways of God for an excuse for the wrong that you want to do, hey, the devil will be there in your deceitful heart and the devil will soon make something up saying, hey, it's got to be God. Just like, oh Lord, it's the woman you gave me. Saul told Samuel, you didn't come when you said you were going to come. It's so easy to make excuses for doing wrong, but God won't buy it. Somebody said, apologies for disobedience are nothing more than a refuge for lies. If you do wrong, even in the most right way that you can, it doesn't make it right. There was no excuse for Jonah's sin. There was no excuse for David's sin with Bathsheba. There was no excuse for moving the Ark of the Covenant without the poles. Remember when David did that? David was taking the ark back to Jerusalem. He he got the guys, they picked it up without the poles. And remember, one of them reached out to stop it because one of the the beasts that was carrying, one of the animals carrying, it it stumbled and the ark was about to fall. And when the man reached out to touch it, God, God struck him dead. And David got angry for that. But God told David, David, I wrote the proper procedures for you to carry the ark. David did a good thing. He was doing what he was, he was carrying the ark, but not the way God told him. And it cost a man his life. David didn't follow the proper written, written procedures. Then he got over, after he got over, he went back, he put the poles in like he was supposed to and carried the ark. All was well. You see, if you do contrary to the Lord's will, regardless of how, again, dire the circumstances are, even though you you do it in the most decent way, it's still sinful. And it will bring you under condemnation. As servants of God, we need to listen to the Word of God. We are under a higher law than anybody else. Because you are redeemed with precious blood. You're chosen by God. Through His sovereign grace, you're made heirs of eternal life. It's your duty to perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord. How? By His Holy Spirit. And we are to do whatever He says to us, not taking any shortcuts or detours. Don't choose to go to Tarshish. Choose to go to Calvary. If you run from the presence of the Lord, a storm will pursue you and and an angry sea will swallow you up. There may not be a great fish for you like there was for Jonah to carry you to shore. You may be lost forever. So to the servant of God, don't run away from your work. And to the sinner, don't go after worthless and empty pleasures. To the Christian, 
Come back to the one that your heart has wandered away from. And from now on, by His grace, be His diligent service to the end. In closing, I want you to remember this. Jonah paid the fare. He paid the price to get on that ship. And it says in verse 3, he went down into it, the ship. He paid the price for running away from God. It always costs to disobey God. And many times it will cost you more than you were willing to pay. Adam sinned and it cost him Eden. Saul disobeyed, it cost him the kingdom. David disobeyed, it cost him his family. And how many people down through the ages has their sin cost their marriage, their family, their job, their reputation, their freedom, their health, and whatever else. In verse 3, notice it. It says, he went down to Joppa. In verse 3 it says, and he went down into it, the ship. In verse 5 it says, he had gone down into the lowest parts. In verse 5 it says also, and had lain down and was asleep. In chapter 2 verse 6 it says, he says, I went down to the moorings of the mountains. Here's the point. Look how many times it says he went down, down, down. Make a note that every step away from God took Jonah further and further down. He went down physically. He went down spiritually. He went down continually. Disobedience to God really messes up the mind. As Jonah could tell you, as well as every person who's been disobedient in every age. Father, we thank you so much again for this wonderful book, God. We thank you for your wonderful word, Father. And Father, help us, as always, Lord, to make your word our guide and to know that you will never do anything contrary to your word. So, Father, help us to keep our eyes upon you, to read your word, to settle upon your word, God. To not take any detours from your word, God. To not justify any wrongdoing, God. And Lord, the enemy is always there to direct us away from your word and from the things that you have called us to do. So Father, we thank you for your wonderful word. And may your spirit lead us and guide us into all truth. And we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.